Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Thank you. My guest today is Stephen Kinzer. Stephen is an award-winning journalist who has covered more than 50 countries on five continents. He spent more than 20 years working for the New York Times, most of it as a foreign correspondent, and he has been called by the Washington Post among the best in popular foreign policy storytelling. Stephen is the author of many books in foreign policy, including the book we discussed today, Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA Search for Mind Control. This is my conversation with Stephen Kinzer. Stephen, welcome to the show. Great to be with you. Can you start by giving us a little bit of the professional and personal background that led you to write this book? I know that this is not the first book you've written that has deeply gone into history of CIA operations. Uh, how did you How did you end up writing this particular book? As you said, I've written a number of books that touch on CIA operations around the world. Uh, one of those books had a section, I, I just had a, a few, maybe a paragraph on an interesting episode that happened in the Congo in 1960. So uh, the Congo uh, had become independent and in its first election, uh, voters had chosen a leader, Patrice Lumumba, who uh, terrified the outside world, including the United States. And at one point, the CIA sent poison to the Congo to assassinate Prime Minister Lumumba. I told this story in, in one of my books, uh, and but that story always stuck with me. That there seemed there must have been so much more there, I kept thinking. So wait a minute. The CIA sent poison to Africa to kill the leader of a country with which we had diplomatic relations. That can't have happened very often. And who would have carried the poison? Would it have been just a courier? How did it work? So this stayed in my mind. And then uh, as I was starting to get interested in the story again, I figured out that it wasn't a courier who brought the poison. The guy who brought the poison uh, from the CIA headquarters to the Congo was actually the guy who made that poison. He was the head of the chemical division of uh, the CIA, which made perfect sense. So he made the poison. He carried it to the Congo. He, he turned it over to the CIA station chief in the Congo and told him he was supposed to use this to assassinate the prime minister. This led the station chief to say, Jesus Christ, who ordered this operation? <laughs> to which Gottlieb replied, President Eisenhower. So. Gottlieb was the guy that made the poison that was supposed to kill Patrice Lumumba in the event it wasn't used. Lumumba was killed in another way. Then I realized with a little bit of research that Gottlieb was the poisoner in chief for the United States government. He made all the poisons that were supposed to kill Fidel Castro. Remember all those pills and drinks and poison pens and poison, poison cigars. Exactly. All of that was made in Sidney Gottlieb's shop. And he made uh, suicide pills for secret agents working in other countries and a whole series of other deadly concoctions. So uh, I, I then realized that he had been asked about this in a Senate investigation during the 1970s. The more I got into Gottlieb, though, the more I began to realize that what little the Senate had done actually missed the point entirely. The really interesting thing about Gottlieb was not that he was the chief poison maker for the US government. That's essentially just the job for a glorified pharmacist. If he hadn't done it, somebody else would have done it. But he did something else that the senators had no idea about, and that was MK Ultra. He was the director of the most concentrated search for the secret of mind control in the history of the world. And in the course of that search, he carried out the most intense and extreme experiments on human beings 
that have ever been conducted by any agent or agency of the U.S. government. He had what effectively amounted to a license to kill. He could go to other countries and requisition prisoners and others uh, on whom he could experiment. And some of these people were experimented to death. So I came to conclude, as I was researching this book, that Gottlieb might well have been the most powerful, unknown American of the 20th century. And that's what led to this fascination that produced the Poisoner in Chief book. And he, you kind of go over in the book that he didn't really fit in with a lot of the, you know, higher ups and CIA types he was working with. Um, He was Jewish. He wasn't part of the old boy American aristocratic networks. How did he end up getting involved in all this? You're absolutely right. And it's a very important part of the Gottlieb story. In the early CIA, um, in the late 40s and through the 50s, uh, there was a very heavy Ivy League accent. Uh, Most of those people, the agents, knew officers knew each other from private schools and yacht clubs and uh, investment banks where they worked or international law firms where they worked. It was was a pretty small, closed group. Gottlieb was completely different, as as you said. Uh, He came from a family of Jewish immigrants. He stuttered. He had a limp. Uh, He he was a very different type. Uh, Later on, I think his uh, co-workers learned that there was something else unusual about him. He didn't live like any other CIA officer or probably any other employee of the U.S. government uh, during the 1950s. Instead of living in some kind of suburban development, he lived in a kind of eco cabin out in the Virginia woods where he communed with nature. He had no running water. He got up before dawn to milk his goats. He read poetry. Uh, He studied Buddhism. Uh, he he was kind of a, a proto-hippie. So Gottlieb was so different from all the people he worked with. And later on, I began to think this wasn't an accident. Maybe the people at the CIA who brought him in realized that whoever does this job for us, the search for mind control, is going to have to do some horrible things. They're going to essentially have to become a torturer. And uh, it's going to be very bloody and people are going to die. We don't want to know about it. That's what the top CIA people would have told each other. We don't want the details. We've got to hire somebody who can do it all and just keep us informed in the most general way. Uh, That way we protect ourselves in the future. However, it's always possible and even likely that some of this might come out at some time in the future. And that could be really bad for us. So the fact that this guy Gottlieb is not part of our club means we can blame it all on him if there's trouble later. And uh, that's exactly what happened. Uh, it was put it all on Sydney. Uh, in fact, later on, one of the subsequent CIA directors uh, told the family of one of Gottlieb's victims, uh, some of our people were out of control in those days. Uh, there was a lack of supervision. And that's exactly true. But it was set up that way. It was set up so that Gottlieb would be out of control, that there would be no supervision, and that later on, if anything went wrong and things came out as they did, the CIA would be able to throw this guy to the sharks because he wasn't a part of their group and they wouldn't feel like they were betraying their class by doing so. Can you talk a little bit about how we know any of this? Like, ju- Just to, to start off, you're, you're talking about some very top secret CIA operations involving drugging people without their knowledge, including American citizens, MKUltra, and and all, all that's very surprising and sounds like, oh, is this just a conspiracy theory? And even if it's true, how would we know? Can you say something about sources for how journalists and scholars know anything about this? MKUltra began in the early 1950s, uh, The CIA had concluded, mistakenly as it turned out, that the Soviets or the Chinese had made great advances in mind control and that they might soon be able to implement some nefarious project that would take all Americans or key Americans under their psychic control. So they assigned Gottlieb 
to carry out whatever experiments he, he could or wanted to uh, in order to find out the secret of mind control ourselves. And this is what set Gottlieb off on his years of horrific experiments. Gottlieb later went on to have quite a full career at the CIA. And when he retired in the mid-1970s, it was in part as a result of the Watergate scandal. Richard Helms, the director of the CIA, who had been Gottlieb's rabbi or kind of unofficial boss all those years, was forced out. Uh, Gottlieb realized that uh, there wasn't any future for him, so he left at the same time. But as Sidney Gottlieb was leaving the CIA in 1973 and Mr. Richard Helms was leaving at the same time, the two of them made a fateful decision. They decided we have to destroy all the records of MKUltra. Uh, now, this is a federal crime because it constitutes the destruction of federal property. Nonetheless, uh, the penalties for that crime are far less than the crime and then the punishment might be for all the crimes that would have been revealed in those documents. So presumably those files of those boxes full of documents that were destroyed contain details of individual experiments, where they were done, who they were done on, what kinds of drugs were used, what were the results. I actually found a uh, notation from the archivist at the CIA Record Center in Virginia in which he says that Gottlieb called him and told him to destroy these seven boxes of records and he refused. And Gottlieb drove over there himself personally and ordered him to do it. And the guy wrote in his uh, log that those cases, those boxes full of documents were destroyed, quote, over my stated objection. As a result, most of the records of MK Ultra are gone. That posed quite a problem for me as I was writing this book. And not only were the records destroyed, but Sidney Gottlieb lived in total anonymity. Nobody knew who he was. His name was completely obscure. So I had to write a biography of a guy who essentially did not exist and ran a program, all of whose records had been destroyed. It's quite a challenge. Now, there are some pieces in addition to the individual research I did. I went to Germany where he carried out some of his experiments and I talked to a number of people as biographers will. Uh, but there were also a few documents uh, that came in handy. In the mid 70s, uh, a document emerged, which was um, a list of all MK Ultra projects. There were over a hundred of them. This list had survived the destruction of files uh, because it was in another folder. It was in uh, something under CIA expenses in the financial department and a number of other documents were uh, discovered. So through these, we have a pretty good idea of what kinds of experiments were carried out. Um, and between that and a number of individual testimonies, uh, I was able to put Poisoner in Chief together. Nonetheless, it's painfully clear to me that that book only reveals a small portion of who Sidney Gottlieb was and what MK Ultra was. Uh, it's frustrating to know that there's a, a lot out there, most of which will never be found because uh, the information died with individuals or was destroyed in that great uh, document dump in the 1970s. Were there any documents that were deliberately not destroyed or was it just documents that were missed because they were in other departments, financial departments and such? I believe that Gottlieb sought to uh, destroy all MKUltra-related documents. Uh, as often happens, he, he didn't quite get to all of them. But uh, I was able to uh, pry some documents loose from the CIA, including uh, a redacted version of uh, Gottlieb's personnel file, which shows uh, his travels. And also, uh, I had an interesting experience uh, with a photo. So uh, nobody ever photographed or, uh, Sidney Godley while he was working for the CIA, at least nobody other than the agency itself. Nobody knew what he looked like. Uh, there were a couple of TV shows that had touched on a little episode of his. And they show him with played by actors who looked totally different from one another because nobody knew what he looked like. Anyway, 
Finally, uh, the CIA came through for me and they sent me a photo of what Gottlieb looked like when he worked at the CIA. So I was very excited about this. It was a big breakthrough. And I called my publisher and told him, great, I've got our, I've got our cover picture. We've got a photo of Gottlieb now. He also was excited. But then after an hour or two, I got an email back saying, I told this to the people in the building and they actually don't like that idea of using it on the cover. The fact is, nobody knows this guy. When they see the picture on the cover, nobody will know who it is. So they say, this is not a good cover picture. Instead of the Gottlieb photo, the graphic designer used a kind of a black silhouette outline of a man's face. And I actually think looking back, that was better because that truly represents who Gottlieb was. Yeah, you see a picture of someone shrouded in mystery, and that tells a story of a, of a mysterious ghost-like figure. Indeed. You, you were talking about the, the mo- some of the motivation for MK Ultra and the quest for mind control and whether mind control, like, can you use drugs or these other chemicals to uh, interrogate people, and that some of this was inspired by what ended up being kind of a, a delusional idea that communist China and the Soviet Union had already developed or mastered these techniques. And then pre-Cold War, some of this is also inspired by the research of the Axis powers, can you talk a little bit about the, you know, the Nazi precursors and the Imperial Japanese precursors, Unit 731, and how those kinds of things fed into this program? When Gottlieb was given this assignment at the CIA, find the secret of mind control, he approached it with a scientist's perspective. Uh, the first thing he thought about was the concept of mind control. And he came to the conclusion that before you can insert a new mind into somebody's brain, you first have to destroy the mind that's in there. And he spent years working on trying to find ways to destroy a human mind, destroy a human body, destroy a human soul. Uh, that was the basis of his experiments. He wanted to find out how to wipe away consciousness and used all sorts of drugs and sensory deprivation and electroshock and other techniques to try to help him get there. The next thing that Gottlieb uh, concluded with his scientist's mind was, since I'm embarking on a uh, project of uh, esoteric and very uh, new kinds of research, I want to find out what research is already out there, who already knows anything about this subject, so that I can build my project on what's already been discovered. Well, he quickly figured out that the true experts on this were the Nazi doctors and their Japanese counterparts, some of whom had carried out so-called experiments that were even more grotesque than the ones carried out in the German concentration camps. So Gottlieb actually got Nazi doctors and Nazi scientists to come and work for MKUltra. He had them working in Germany, and they even came to the United States. Uh, for example, one Nazi doctor came to uh, the CIA to give a talk on a subject that the CIA could never uncover on its own. It had to do with sarin gas, which is a highly poisonous gas. The question was, when you want to kill a baby or a small child with sarin gas, do you need to use just as much gas as you do with an adult, or can it be less? Now, the only way to find that out is to kill a bunch of people. The Americans had never done that and couldn't, but they found out that the Nazis had. So they could come and find someone that would give them a lecture on how much sarin gas you needed to use to kill an infant. This went on and on. And the Nazi doctors became an integral part of MKUltra. It was actually on the basis of the experiments carried out in the Nazi concentration camps and the Japanese installation to which you referred that were the foundation of MKUltra. It was built on that foundation. And uh, when I was writing uh, my book, Poisoner in Chief, this became particularly clear to me. I went to Germany. And I visited 
what I think might be the first ever CIA secret prison. It's a lovely little chalet in the woods outside of Frankfurt. And that's where Gottlieb carried out some of his most brutal experiments. So I went over there. I found the building. Um, it had been identified already in one of the German uh, leading magazines as the CIA torture house. So I found the building. It was being uh, renovated by a young entrepreneur in Bade into condos. And the guy took me around the house. He showed me the big living room with the fireplace where those scientists and Gottlieb would have sat around discussing their experiments. It's just a private and house then, now? It's a private home, yeah. It's got condos in it. And then he took me down into the basement. So while the uh, guys were sitting upstairs, sickling their cognacs in front of the uh, fireplace, there were guys tied down or in coffins or being subjected to various torments underneath. So he took me into, his, into the basement and he said to me, these storage rooms that you see were the cells where the CIA doctors carried out those experiments that were actually only continuations of the experiments that those Nazi doctors with whom they were working had conducted only a few years earlier in concentration camps just down the road. So uh, it's clear that uh, Gottlieb uh, relied heavily on expertise that he couldn't get any other way and that he got from the Japanese and German torturers. Of course, the uh, footnote to all of this is that Gottlieb himself was Jewish. His parents immigrated from Central Europe in the early 20th century. If they had not done that, if they'd stayed in Europe, there's every possibility that they would have been taken away in one of those Nazi sweeps and that possibly young Sydney might have become the victim or the subject of one of those grotesque experiments in some concentration camp. But in the event, he didn't seem to have any hesitation working shoulder to shoulder with the Nazi doctors who had carried out those concentration camp experiments. Is that your impression of the, the relationship in general? I'm, I'm just trying to picture like the day-to-day experience of these Nazi doctors working with the Americans. Like, how did the American scientists feel? Was it all camaraderie? Uh, you have interesting things to teach us. If only we could do experiments like that, the things we'd know. So tell us what you know. Or was there distrust there? And then from the Nazis' perspective, too, are they feeling like all of a sudden they're working for the enemy? Is it just relief that they're not in this, they're not in like a Soviet prison? Or what, what was that like? The, this uh, development of Nazis coming to work for the American government began uh, with a proposal uh, that actually was made uh, to Franklin Roosevelt by the chief of his uh, Organization for Strategic Services while World War II was still underway. It was just ending. And uh, the uh, OSS chief told Franklin Roosevelt that he wanted to hire some Nazis. He wanted to have permission to bring some Nazis into the United States to serve us. And Roosevelt refused. He said he wouldn't do it. Then Roosevelt died. Everything began to change. Truman was president. And the first group of Americans to hire Nazis were our pre-CIA secret service. The Americans hired uh, one of Hitler's chief spy masters, General Reinhard Galen. Galen had been in charge of all Nazi spying on Eastern Europe and Soviet Union. He had huge networks all over that part of the world. Uh, for a large sum, we purchased his services. We kept them on a big stipend. And he turned over the whole Galen network to us. This was very valuable to the CIA because we didn't have spy networks inside the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was our ally. So Galen became a key figure. And later we made him the head of the West German Security Service. This was a guy who had been a high Nazi officer. So that was the first wave. The spies, the Nazi spies came to work for the United States. The second wave came with the rocket scientists, the people who were developing a space program and intercontinental ballistic missiles for military use were very eager to find those scientists who had developed those great uh, V-2 rockets that rained down so much death on London and other cities in Europe. And we wanted to bring a number of those over. That was also permitted. 
This was all part of something called Operation Paperclip, which was the operation by which over a thousand Nazis were brought to the United States. In many cases, after their biographies had been bleached, as it was called, uh, <laughs> all the references to their SS membership and so forth were taken out and references were added to uh, what good family people they were and so forth. So now you have two groups of Nazis working for the U.S. government, Nazi spies and Nazi rocket scientists. This is when the CIA chemical people went to the White House and said, well, if we've now broken the taboo on Nazis working for us and we have Nazi spies <laughs> and Nazi rocket scientists, how about the Nazi doctors that worked in the concentration camps? Now we're involved in this huge search for mind control. It's top priority. So we need permission to hire these guys. And that's what happened. It's siblings <laughs> arguing with their parents. It's not fair. If they get Nazis, then we should get Nazis in our department. Exactly. And when you talk about the uh, the attitudes, I think they actually got along quite well. Um, the uh, There was always a feeling that we never should have been fighting each other. What we really hate is communism. And therefore, fighting the Soviets is uh, what America and the Nazis always wanted. So finally, we're on the same side together, which we always should have been if it hadn't been for that little Hitler detail. So uh, I think there was a feeling of uh, camaraderie and common purpose. Naturally, the Nazi scientists were very happy. Some of them would have been imprisoned and a couple even executed that we saved from the hangman. Uh, instead of hanging them, we decided to hire them. Uh, so certainly that would have been part of it. It was a, a much nicer fate. But I also think uh, on the part of the Americans, there there wasn't much hesitation or uh, moralizing about the past crimes of Nazis. They seemed to be welcomed into MKUltra without any emotional discomfort. And on the Japanese side, were there lots of scientists brought over? Or was it just the one who was in charge of Unit 731? It's an interesting story. The Americans did bring various German scientists to the United States. Some of them worked with us in Germany and elsewhere uh, on these MKUltra projects, but that didn't go for the Japanese. Uh, I think a lot of it might have had to do with racism, that uh, the idea of uh, a dozen Japanese scientists suddenly turning up in Washington on some secret mission was thought to be a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Um, so the substitute was that we would hire those guys and work with them in Japan or maybe even in East Asia. We don't have uh, records about this, but could it be that uh, Japanese uh, doctors or scientists would go to, say, uh, Korea or the Philippines where MKUltra experiments were carried out and, uh, and assist or oversee? That we don't know. Certainly there were experiments going on in Japan. Don't forget that Japan and Germany posed particularly wonderful uh, pools of victims for uh, Gottlieb because they were both under American rule. They were occupied countries. So there was no legal authority in Germany or no legal authority in uh, Japan other than allied power. It was uh, the United States that ruled everything. So um, if there were people in prison and Sidney Gottlieb showed up and said he needed five people to experiment on, uh, the U.S. occupation authorities could provide those human beings without having to check with any local person. That certainly allowed the MKUltra experiments to uh, go on to their grotesque extremes. So in this in this whole process of searching for mind control, it, it was all a bust, right? Like it, the Soviets and the Chinese didn't really have this capability and the CIA never found it. Is that right? Was it was it just like one failure after another or or rediscovering interesting ways to torture people? Yeah, you can torture people with drugs. Maybe you can break their minds, but they never really figured out how to put anything back in or or just reliable interrogation techniques. You're absolutely right. They, they found very successful ways to destroy human minds, but they never found a way to put a new mind in there. They tested all sorts of drugs uh, as interrogation aids. Uh, at one time, and for quite a long period, uh, Gottlieb himself was fascinated with LSD. That one of his aides said he thought it might be the uh, key to unlock the universe. In other words, this is going to be the real 
drug that's going to loosen people's tongues and uh, make them do everything we want. But of course, it turned out to be too unreliable. So in the end, yeah, Gottlieb finally concluded that there's no such thing as mind control. Uh, it's a myth that you can make people do things like go out and commit a murder if they're deeply opposed to doing that in their deepest soul. Now, this led me to the question of what led them to believe this was true in the first place? What, what, where did they get this idea? And I think uh, there are at least two factors uh, that, that gave them this false sense that there was a, a secret, there was a key out there to mind control. Uh, the first had to do with the misinterpretation of two historical events that happened in the immediate post-war period. Uh, the first was a trial that happened in Hungary. Uh, the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Hungary was arrested by the communist authorities. And after some months in prison, he was put on trial. Uh, in that trial, he confessed to crimes that he obviously had not committed. And what attracted the CIA even more was the way that he spoke. He seemed to have kind of glassy eyes and speaking in a monotone. Now, it later turned out that that cardinal had been uh, tortured with the same methods that have been used for centuries. He was kept in a dark room. There was repeated interrogations. He was pushed around. Uh, but that wasn't enough. That didn't satisfy the CIA's curiosity. They thought it has to have been something more. This guy is speaking with somebody else's brain. They're projecting something into his head. They found a way to make it seem like he's speaking when actually it's someone else. This was a complete fantasy, but this is what the CIA believed. And it terrified them because they thought now we're at a great disadvantage. They know how to do this. So that was a completely mistaken conclusion, but as you can imagine, a terrifying one if you believed it. Then the second thing happened uh, at the end of the Korean War. American uh, prisoners turned out to have written a number of uh, denunciations of the United States. Several African Americans wrote about racism back at home and how they didn't want to go back. Uh, a number of them confessed to war crimes in Korea, including the, the use of biological weapons and the dropping of biological bombs, which the United States to this day denies ever happened. Then when the prisoners were released, they've traveled uh, from North Korea across the Soviet Union to Europe. And uh, some of them were said to have experienced periods of wooziness as they went through Northern China, which is of course, Manchuria. That's where that phrase Manchurian candidate comes from. So. The CIA concluded, what would have made robust young American boys confess to having committed crimes in war or say critical things about the United States? It has to have been they were drugged or their minds were messed with. Maybe as they passed through Manchuria, something was bombarded into their brains. That must have been it. What could it have been? So these two episodes, the trial in Hungary and then the Korean prisoners, electrified the CIA. They completely misinterpreted both of them and, and took them as proof that uh, communist uh, scientists were far ahead of them. And therefore, there was a frantic need uh, to carry out American research in this area. That's why I think Gottlieb was essentially given his license to kill. He was told effectively, whatever you have to do. It has to be done. Don't, don't tell us about it, but there's no limits. This is so important. That's why I think he was really the, the most important American of the century that, that nobody had ever heard of. These projects all came together, and that became the first reason why the CIA plunged into this uh, experimentation. But I think there was another reason that predated that. So these stories about the Cardinal in Hungary and U.S. prisoners in Korea did not fall on infertile ground when it came to the minds of the CIA officers. I went back and looked at all of the stories, the movies, the novels uh, about mind control. There are so many of them. And, and those people of that generation that came of age in the first half of the 20th century would have been exposed to many, many stories from Sherlock Holmes to the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, somebody puts a pill in a drink. 
Someone drinks it. Suddenly they're a different person. There's a, a watch that's waved in front of someone's face. And the next thing you know, he's going into the embassy and stealing documents. So Dr. Uh, Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. A lot of it is coming from stories like that. So I think these guys came in with a uh, predetermined sense that, yeah, there must be something out there about mind control. Then they figured if writers and could imagine these things and scientists could make them real. If there were so many stories, there must be something there. So they were given a false impression by all these stories and movies that they were exposed to, not the fault of the people who created them because those were only fantasies. And then these two episodes in the uh, post-war period uh, just uh, fed into their fears. And that's why they developed this uh, fascination, this urgency, to find out a secret that actually even Gottlieb admitted at the end does not exist. Yeah, it seems like likely the case for a lot of people. It's very motivated reasoning. I mean, they if they want some kind of leg up on the competition. It's a, it's a fascinating idea. It opens up the possibility for interesting projects. And if you can convince yourself or other people that the enemy can do it, then that's big motivation. It, it feels like what's like satirized in, in Dr. Strangelove when they're when at the end, General Turgenson's lamenting that they can't they can't allow a mine shaft gap if the Soviets build a deeper mine than they do. And we got to jump on this right away. I don't know. Do you suspect any kind of cyn- more cynical motivated reasoning on the part of the CIA? Or do you think they genuinely believed that the Soviets and the Chinese had mastered these techniques? Uh, I do think that the CIA must have had in its larger ambition the idea that whoever can find the secret of mind control really could control the whole world. And that's true. There is no such secret. But when you think about it, suppose you could control the minds of world leaders or the minds of particular people around the world and tell them what to do and program them. Um, It just sounds so tempting. I think that uh, the fact that that was even a possibility uh, electrified people like Alan Dulles, uh, the uh, CIA director. That's why he named the program Ultra. It was really the most important project at the CIA. And when you think about it, it makes sense. If you could find a way to control people's minds, the prize would be nothing less than global mastery. And that was always an appealing prospect at the CIA. <laughs> so they're researching this prospect in, in lots of different ways uh, and, and often through front groups or, or using organizations that either had no idea or were only dimly aware of the CIA's involvement, I think. Can you say something about the CIA's relationship with like research universities, hospitals, think tanks, prisons, and how and well, and and less savory groups like uh, brothels and things like that, and how they used all these various front groups to conduct the research. The Gottlieb idea was to carry out experiments that were mercilessly brutal, but also to carry out experiments that were consensual. In the in the United States. As far as we know, he he didn't carry out experiments that led to people's deaths the way he did in other countries. Um, Here, uh, he did use uh, prisoners a lot because, of course, the prisoners are uh, very uh, susceptible to pressure from the warden and the prison doctors. And some of those experiments were truly horrific. But Gottlieb also wanted to know how ordinary people would respond to uh, LSD under normal circumstances. So one thing he did is uh, what you mentioned. Uh, He he opened up a bordello in uh, San Francisco. And it's up there on Telegraph Hill, nice view of the bay. Um, He had a string of prostitutes who would pick up men in bars or wherever and then bring them back to this apartment. There they would be fed drinks that were spiked with whatever drug Gottlieb wanted to try on people that day. This idea of using uh, patrons of prostitutes uh, had the advantage that the the victims couldn't complain afterward. Uh, If something really bad happened to them, they couldn't go home and tell their wife where it was or tell their boss. So uh, like prisoners, uh, they seemed like safe subjects for experimentation. 
But in addition, to, and that, by the way, uh, that uh, Bordello project in San Francisco was named Operation Midnight Climax. And it was a, a real example of how sloppy uh, the whole MKUltra program was. So they wanted to know, um, will certain kinds of drugs, when combined with sex, make people more willing to talk or more willing to follow orders? Uh, but the people they had watching through the one-way mirror were just cops sitting on toilets, drinking cocktails out of pitchers. There were nobody there. There were no people there who were psychologists or experts in sexual behavior or people that were knowledgeable about psychotropic drugs. There was no science there. Now, the other interesting uh, aspect of, uh, of non-coercive use of LSD did come with the use of hospitals and uh, universities. So Gottlieb wanted to, Gottlieb was fascinated with LSD, as I mentioned. In fact, in 1953, he persuaded the CIA to purchase the entire world supply of, C, of LSD, which it did. Uh, they brought it from Switzerland to the United States. Gottlieb then used it for his experiments in the US and abroad. But he also, as I said, wanted to test it in clinical settings. In other words, a person would come in, they would be told this is LSD, this is what's gonna to happen to you, we're gonna put you in a nice room. Just the opposite from the way he was using LSD to torture people with massive overdoses. Um, so uh, the CIA not having networks of clinics around the country, uh, it called on university hospitals, veterans hospitals and clinics. And it didn't do this in its own name. The CIA, Gottlieb in particular, created a couple of bogus foundations. These foundations then wrote to the hospitals and the uh, clinics and said, we have this new drug, LSD. Uh, we would like you to uh, test it for us. You would put an ad in the newspaper asking for volunteers. You would tell the volunteers exactly what the drug was, what to expect. And then you would uh, observe them and then write uh, memos for us and send them back. And we pay for everything. We pay for the drugs. We pay extra for you. So suddenly a whole new market in LSD research grew up because of this funding. And the first groups of people came in to try LSD, thinking it was a university experiment. And as you point out, the university or the hospital was not aware that that foundation was actually the CIA. So who were among the very first people to go in and respond to those ads and try LSD? Uh, one of them was Allen Ginsberg, the poet who uh, listened to uh, Tristan and Isolde on his headphones while taking his first LSD trip and then became a huge prophet of LSD. Um, Robert Hunter, the lyricist for The Grateful Dead, loved LSD. He took it, he brought it home, he turned on The Grateful Dead. That started the whole dead culture. Um, the uh, author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Ken Kesey, was another early experimenter and then went to work in the hospital. I read an interview with him where he said, I, I got my, my material for the book, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, from working in this hospital. But that's not the reason I went to work there. I went to work there so I could get a key to the pharmacy and steal all the LSD, which is what <laughs> he did. So what it means is that Gottlieb became the conduit through which LSD penetrated into the mass counterculture. I saw an interview during my research with John Lennon. He was asked uh, about LSD and he said, we must always remember to thank the CIA. Now, he had never heard of Sidney Gottlieb. Nobody had. But if he had, he would have said, you must always remember to thank Sidney Gottlieb. And the irony, of course, is that the drug, LSD, that Sidney Gottlieb believed would give the CIA the chance to control the world actually wound up fueling a generational rebellion that was aimed at destroying everything the CIA stands for. And you mentioned prisons, too. As long as we're uh, on this listing of famous people that were caught up in MKUltra research, another one was Whitey Bulger. And, and not, not as a part of a student rebellion or anything as a prisoner, but if anyone in the audience has seen 
Black Mass starring Johnny Depp. He plays Whitey Bulger or uh, The Departed. Jack Nicholson's character is heavily based on Whitey Bulger. Can you say something about his experience being taking uh, LSD for months at a time in a prison? Whitey Bulger was a kind of small time hoodlum who was arrested in Boston and sent to the uh, federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia. This was in the mid 1950s when MK Ultra was at an intense peak. He was approached by the prison doctor, who was also the head of the psychiatry department at Emory University, a Dr. Pfeiffer. And this guy told him that we he told him there was underway a uh, an experiment project aimed at trying to find a cure for schizophrenia, and that Bulger could get good time and better treatment in prison uh, if he participated. So uh, he agreed to participate. But we see from his diaries that he thought he was going completely insane. They, they were feeding him LSD in large doses for months, 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 day after day after day. He writes that he was even afraid to tell people what he was seeing because he thought they would say, I'm crazy and they'll never let me out of here for the rest of my life. Uh, so he was one of the he's one of the few uh, MK Ultra victims who uh, lived long enough to realize what had happened to him. So these experiments happened in the 1950s. Then Bulger went on to become this psychotic killer. We all know Then he was arrested and he was sent to jail um, for 11 murders, all the rest of them they couldn't prove. But, so this happened in the 1950s. By the 70s, Whitey Bulger was a big, uh, terrifying figure in the in Boston Mafia. And that's when the news about MK Ultra came out. And after that first burst of news, local newspapers in cities that have been named in some of these early reports began looking into what had happened. And one of them was in Atlanta. They focused on this Dr. Pfeiffer and made clear that he was the person who was the MK Ultra guy in the, at the, in the federal prison, that he was the one running these LSD experiments. It had nothing to do with schizophrenia. Whitey writes in his, one of his diary notes, I, I kept asking him to take me off. I said I couldn't take it anymore. And he said, please, you can't quit now. We're so close to finding a cure, and you're one of our best subjects. So... Uh, 20 years later, Whitey Bulger realized that this was all a lie and that uh, Pfeiffer had been using him as a guinea pig and destroying his mind so that he could send uh, memos back to Sidney Gottlieb. And he told members of his gang crew in Boston, I'm going to go to Atlanta, I'm going to find that Pfeiffer, and I'm going to kill him. Now, as far as we know, he didn't do that. Pfeiffer seems to have died a natural death, but that shows you the extent uh, and the intensity of his anger. He felt that his life had been uh, disastrously uh, twisted uh, by MK Ultra. In fact, he wrote in one of his later uh, uh, essays about this, I was in jail for committing a crime, but I feel like a greater crime was committed on me. Now, as I said, we can't find most of the MK Ultra victims. We don't know who they were because all of the information was destroyed. But a few of them have come back and have put it all together. Uh, and from them, we can draw a lot of interesting detail about what that program was. One of those people was Whitey Bulger. And he wasn't unique in dosing people with LSD, high levels of LSD for not just a couple of days, but for months and months at a time. Of course, that's yes, we have we have a case at the uh, Lexington, Kentucky prison uh, where a uh, prison doctor working with Gottlieb uh, administered what he called double, uh, no, uh, triple and quadruple doses of LSD to seven African-American prisoners for a total of 77 days. So presumably the purpose of that experiment was to find out if such a massive overdose of LSD could destroy a person's mind. We don't know what the answer is, but I, I can guess that the answer is yes. You give a person a quadruple dose of LSD and lock them in a padded cell uh, and do this for uh, 77 days. Yeah, it probably would destroy your mind. Now, I asked myself, what happened to those seven guys? Who were they? Did they ever realize what had been done to them? Uh, there's no way to find out because all the records were destroyed. But uh, these are the kinds of uh, 
fantasies or imaginations uh, or wonderings that occur to you when you start uh, delving into the nature of these experiments and the people who were their victims. And they have to be lucky enough to to have learned about this later on, put the pieces together, and have the the means and willingness to you know say something about it. I'm sure I'm sure a lot of people who were involved in this ended up with less than stellar life prospects afterwards. I mean, a lot of them may have ended up homeless or crazy if the if if the yeah, and, and the, mind the worst breaking. thing the, the worst thing, of course, for those people is if they, they were seriously mentally ill and couldn't deal with life or society. They might sit down with somebody and somebody would say, what happened to you? And they'd say, the CIA drugged me. <laughs> of course, everybody would laugh. Yeah. So uh, that's what made the experiments in some ways so effective and uh, so diabolical. At one point, you mentioned uh, one of these experiments that did this to children as well or, or like adolescent boys. There were all kinds of uh, substances that Godley wanted to prove to uh, test. and. Uh, he had the idea that uh, radioactive substances might actually have a, an impact on thyroid glands or other parts of uh, the children's bodies as they were growing. So, yeah, he did contract with a couple of universities to sprinkle some uh, radioactive material on kids' uh, cereal in the morning. Uh, and again, we don't know the results of those experiments. I hope it made the cereal taste better. You said that there, as far as we know, he did not conduct experiments on American citizens on American soil that that led directly to death or where he, you know, where he killed people. But he did do that, you know, out of the United States. But there were some advertent or inadvertent deaths on American soil, suspicious suicides or you, there one incident where they were experimenting with spraying gas over, I think, San Francisco that should have been relatively innocuous, but led to at least one death. So, there, there were deaths that, that occurred, right, uh, on American soil, whether it was intentional or not? There were. Uh, we know of a couple of cases. One was a professional tennis player named Harold Lauer who went into a hospital for a modest treatment and... Uh, wound up being given massive overdoses of drugs and dying on the operating table. That doctor was carrying out an MK Ultra experiment on him. Uh, the uh, so-called suicide to which you refer is also a very interesting story to which I devote a chapter in Poisoner in Chief. Uh, That's this Frank a, Olson? Right. This got, Frank Olson was a scientist who worked on the MK Ultra project, meaning that he was one of a very small number of people who knew everything that MK Ultra did and everything that MK Ultra was? At some point, apparently, after watching uh, someone being killed in an experiment using a poison gas that he himself had devised, he seems to have had an attack of conscience. He decided he didn't want to do this anymore. And not only did he want to leave MK Ultra, he wanted to quit the CIA. And we now know he even asked one of his friends, do you know a good journalist? Uh, so this naturally would have caused great concern at the CIA. If that secret of MK Ultra had come out at that time in the 1950s, it would have devastated the CIA and the entire United States. So uh, it was urgent that uh, the details of MK Ultra, or even the existence of MK Ultra, never be publicly released. Suddenly you had one of the few people who knows the whole story seeming like he doesn't want to be part of the project anymore. And that was a security risk of the very highest level. Um, at one point uh, at the end of 1953, Olson was brought to a gathering of the MK Ultra group and fed LSD uh, without his knowledge, perhaps in an attempt to see what he was really thinking inside. Um, nothing came out of that meeting, but a couple of days later, when uh, after the CIA comrades had brought Frank Olson to New York for a psychiatric examination, right around Thanksgiving of 1953, he went out a window of a hotel uh, opposite Penn Station in New York and was killed in the fall. Uh, that was described at the time as the suicide of an army scientist. Now, he was not an army scientist. He worked for the CIA. 
and the fact that it was a suicide was taken um, for granted for a while. Uh, but at first, it just seemed like he was a disturbed person. Then it wasn't until 20 years later that the news came out. Actually, they had drugged this guy with LSD. And that must have been what made him crazy. And we're so sorry. In fact, the president of the United States brought Olson's family into the Oval Office to apologize, something that has never happened in the entire history of the CIA. And uh, that was then the next story. It wasn't just that he was depressed and committed suicide. It was that the CIA might have helped him get depressed by giving him LSD without his knowledge. So that was story number two. Then years later, the body was exhumed. Uh, further examinations were made. Police investigations were launched. And uh, came story number three, which is that he didn't commit suicide because he was depressed. In fact, he didn't commit suicide because he was thrown crazy by LSD. He didn't commit suicide at all. And when you go into that hotel room and you see the space as some of the investigators have and the way he did it, the story really doesn't hold up. So um, it's quite possible that he was helped out that window. And uh, that would have certainly have qualified as a uh, death associated with MKUltra, although it was not seen that way at the time. Is there any evidence that MKUltra-style projects continued after their official shuttering? It would be foolish to believe that all this experimentation ended and, and never started again. I'm, uh, without any evidence, uh, convinced that somewhat similar projects must be underway now. Recall that, as I mentioned earlier, Sidney Gottlieb concluded around 1960 or the early 60s that there's no such thing as mind control. And he probably had a better basis on which to make that judgment than any living human. So I'm willing to believe him. But he was talking about the realm of scientific knowledge in 1960. Think about the advances in cyber technology, artificial intelligence, uh, and related fields that have been made since then. The idea of mind control now transcends chemistry and goes into another universe. So although there's no such thing as mind control was a true statement when Gottlieb made it, I wonder if it is anymore. I'd be surprised if you could tell me that nobody in Moscow or Washington or Langley or Beijing is experimenting with mind control projects. It just seems to me that as technology gets more and more advanced and we're looking for ways to win wars that are very exotic and haven't been thought of yet, this must be one of the things that people are working on. I won't be here to see it, but in 50 years, I hope there's another Stephen Kinzer to write another Poisoner in Chief book to tell us <laughs> what happened back in 2022. There can be no shortage. More Stephen Kinzer's the better. Do you have any upcoming projects we should know about? No, I'm continuing with, with my uh, teaching at Brown University, where I'm trying to uh, transmit some of what I've learned and um, spend the rest of my time talking with fine folks like you and your listeners. I do so appreciate it. Um, this is the third book of yours that I've read. I discovered your work with Overthrow, where you detail the 14 times in the 20th century and a little beyond that the U.S. has inspired or directly conducted coups or overthrown foreign governments. And, and I loved that book. And then I read The True Flag, another amazing book by Stephen Kinzer. And then this one, Poisoner in Chief, which was also amazing. So I highly recommend my listeners, check it out. Even if this doesn't sound like the kind of thing you would ordinarily be interested in, it's just a great story. It's mind-blowing and it's hard to believe that it's real. So highly recommend that. This book and your other books will be on the show notes. Do you want to say anything about where people can find you to keep up with your ongoing work? I have a website, stephenkinzer.com. I write a newspaper column for the Boston Globe. So they have a paywall, but my website does not. So you can get on there and read all my rants. If that's not enough for you, there's always Poison Orange. Wonderful. Well, that will all be linked to on the show notes, as I said. Stephen Kinzer, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That was Stephen Kinzer, and his book once again is Poisoner-in-Chief, Sidney Gottlieb, and the CIA Search for Mind Control. 
If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.